0: Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul, all of the time. Join me, your host Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another bonus episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul, all of the time. Yes, I am of course your host Sam Wiles, and today... We are indeed back for one of our many, many, many side series on this show. Here we are specifically honouring the holy grail of unreleased McCartney projects, the fabled Hot Hits and Cold Cuts compilation album, which was originally conceived to gather and collate all of the disparate tracks that Paul McCartney hadn't really put out onto a proper album before at that point. And with that album in mind, we have been eschewing regular album reviews to instead go through every single B-side, single, bonus track, deleted track and lost song along the way. Oh, it's wonderful to be doing this little side series again. It's been quite a while actually since we did the last one. And thanks to the chronology of this series, we are still deep in Wings territory, which is fine by me, of course. And I must say, rather oddly, uh, probably more so than any other of these Cold Cuts episodes that we have done, these songs are songs that I've actually been listening to repeatedly in my spare time. I've actually come across quite a few tracks because of this episode and the research therein. Uh, Songs that I've really grown quite an affection for. and, And they'll rank amongst some of my favourite obscure McCartney oddities. They really will. And I'm really excited to talk about some of these because this is an area of the discography, well, the unreleased discography and uh, semi-released discography, should we say, that I'm really not familiar with. There There were many, many tracks that were introduced to me for the first time here. Of course, that is part of the process of this Paul or Nothing show. As many of you, I'm sure, know, this is a show that isn't a completionist experience. We are going through and discovering these songs together, and in this case, with this episode, I am literally discovering some of these songs with you. I'm sure many of you out there know most of these, but hey, maybe there's one or two on this episode that you haven't come across, and maybe we've both learned something new. Uh, Something I didn't intend to do when I set out to do this particular episode, you know, I I'd like, I'd like to kind of block things off when I'm planning all future episodes and stuff. But it seems today that, uh, without my knowledge, today's episode is going to be a very Americana-centric episode of this podcast. You know me, folks, on this podcast, I'm a shameless Anglophile, and I know I've previously bemoaned how Macca had, at a certain point in his career, become more focused on songs that were either recorded in America or were based on experiences in America and about America. And whilst that complaint is semi-jesting, it is still an interesting shift in McCartney's career, this desire to once again break the state and perhaps to indulge in its musics and maybe even pander to its audience somewhat, to maybe get a feel of the country before you know launching on the wings over America Tour perhaps. We all know McCartney's able to absorb and reappropriate and regurgitate any musical style that he is able to get his grubby little mitts on, and it's gonna be interesting to see how he reinterprets America for its own ears. I mean, we're not gonna get the full cultural gamut of all fifty fabulous states here. Quickly we're gonna see that you know, exactly where the band were hanging out and what wings were experiencing. In spite of that, though, I must say, this is a deceptively interesting and enjoyable little cluster of songs that will, for better or worse, display Wings' raw songwriting talent. No prizes for guessing who had the best songs here, but you'll have to wait to find out who's second place here, because it is hashtag shocking. Before I start this episode, I just want to take a moment to thank... Each and every one of you out there who is supporting this show in your own way, even if you're just listening to this and, you, and you've and you've downloaded, you've done more than I could ever possibly imagine. Really, a few years ago when I started this, uh, we also have a couple of new Patreon supporters who have joined us. You know, I, I absolutely cannot believe I'm saying that. Absolute huge shout out to Anastasia and Tony. Your support is infinitely welcomed, and I am indebted for you for helping support this poxy little podcast of mine. And Another Patreon-supported episode will be coming out very soon, actually. Our Hey Grand Dude review. Yeah, that'll just be a little, a little quick bonus one. It shan't take too long to record that one, I don't think. And if there are any of you out there right now listening, you know, wondering, considering, maybe supporting the show, maybe you really like what I've been doing with the show here, maybe you really liked our interview with Brant Gutierrez recent- recently, maybe you want to help support something that you love for the new year. And if every one of you donated just $1 a month, then that would be more than enough for me to do this show full-time. So if you want to be just like Tony and you want to help support the show, if you want to help keep the lights running, help me upgrade the equipment, keep it ad-free, then check out the links down below for our our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash McCartneyPod. I'm always looking for new ways to use the Patreon funds to help better the show. So, if you have any ideas, or if you just want to get in contact with the show in a more intimate fashion, then please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And, as always, let me know your Paul McCartney stories, no matter how inane, benign, or erroneous. I always like to read out your emails as well on the show as well. Haven't got any today, so we'll just press right on. Contact us via Twitter for more of an everyday update kind of thing. Get to see what I post up there. It's all McCartney there all the time. As usual, I get to do a lot of polls up there. I always love to see what songs you vote for as well. Find us on Facebook and YouTube, simply by Ty Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Podomatic or on whatever format you are using. I had a couple of new reviews in the other day, actually. Both were three stars. like, oh my god, three stars? And both people, they did give sound points about the show. You know, sometimes I am a bit stream of conscious and rambly, and I do drop a lot of F-bombs and stuff. And I'm not the Paul McCartney completionist who knows everything about him. But, you know... That really was the point from the beginning, this is a journey about, you know, discovering Paul McCartney's discography, and maybe at the end of it, it might be more well-rounded and well-read, but hey, that's what makes this show different. Uh, If you like this show, if you do agree with my statements there, then please drop us a five-star review and help tip the balance, as it were. Obviously for those two out there who were not completely pleased with the show, Uh, Thank you so much for listening, and hey, maybe you'll like some of the content we've got lined up for you in 2020. And lastly, of course, you can check out our sister blog, which is www.paulmcconneypod.wordpress.com, where you can find all sorts of bonus content and articles based around Paul and the show. And that is all of the housekeeping done. Moving on to the episode proper now. So far in the story, with our hot hits and cold cuts... Uh, Over the course of two and a half slash three episodes, we've covered everything from the end of the Beatles in 69 right up to 1974, as best as I can tell. If there are any songs that I have missed, which I'm pretty sure I must have, then please drop us an email at paulmancarneypod at gmail.com. I'd love to know what gaps I might need to fill out. Do I need need to do a 3.5 episode already? Who knows? But yeah, after a lot of research and much confused searching, I have a bunch more songs for us here today. Some songs you will have definitely heard of, some songs you'll have probably heard of, and maybe even a couple you haven't. We find ourselves with wings in this period during the research, rehearsal and recording to the uh, follow-up smash hit that was Band on the Run. This is an incredibly interesting period for the band. Because right now, they're actually at a genuine point of success, incredible, genuine success. The world is their oyster at this point. And yet, they're going to gain two drummers, lose another one, as well as introduce a brand new lead guitarist. As I mentioned, Paul knew he was about to crack the states once again, and part of the hype train logically would be him recording some material there. Not only is this perfect marketing, but it also seems to be a recreation of the fantastic change of setting method that Paul would use to inspire himself and the band during albums, during recording sessions for Band on the Run, London Town, Tug of War and others. Obviously, Paul, All Nothing is mostly an album review show. we have been going through album by album. And now this is our chance for us to go back and look at every single track we missed along the way, starting in 1974 with Zoo Gang. So, first up on this episode we have a song that, had I actually been born a couple of decades earlier, I'm sure I actually probably would have known it rather well, as this is a song by Wings that was broadcast onto thousands of British TV sets, probably more often than any of their actual individual music videos. This is Zoo Gang. we truly have a Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode without an instrumental B-side? Probably not. And I'm glad we've started strong here because Zoo Gang is a B-side to a pretty popular song indeed. A song that has routinely won every Twitter poll we have ever ran and that song of course is Band On The Run from Band On The Run. Of course with this song being the B-side to inarguably one of the biggest wing songs ever you would think that I would know this track intimately, inside and out, top to bottom, and I just don't. So I'm going to stall for time and talk about some of the behind the scenes stuff. So yeah, unbeknownst to me, Wings actually somehow were either commissioned to write a song for a British TV show drama, or that a British TV show drama was Shopping around for a track and Wings simply gave them something that they had lying around. I'm not too sure of the specifics and none of the literature I've read points to any links. But there are a few clues that do point to it being a specific project. The first piece of evidence that points to a commission is the fact that the song was the only track recorded in a one-off session in April of 73 when Wings simply had nothing else going on. Not only that, but the show's music composer, Ken Thorne, has Beatle connections all the way back to Ringo in The Magic Christian. And since the show premiered on April 5th, 1974, and the Band on the Run single was released on the 28th of June, 1974, it's easy to see that there may have been a little bit of planning behind all of this. Not sure why this was the specific project, though, that McCartney wanted to attach wings to. But, oh, oh, wait, hang on a second. The now-defunct UK TV channel ATV that the show Zoo Gang broadcast on was also the original broadcaster of the James Paul McCartney TV special. Yeah. I think it's pretty much a done deal that Zoo Gang might be a case of returning a business favour. Don't you? The show itself, Zoo Gang, which only ran for one season, with only six episodes that ran for an hour each, was the story of the last four of six World War II resistance fighters known by their animal code names, hence the Zoo Gang. Supposedly, they were betrayed to the Gestapo by one of their number, the Wolf, and another one of their cohort was shot under interrogation. 30 years later, one of the four survivors spots the wolf in his shop, and so contacts the other three, and together they decide to take vengeance. Or, at least, that's the premise, because when I go on the episode-by-episode wiki, there seems to be all sorts of uh, whimsical capers (laughs) involving diamond smugglers, thieves, heists, and, above all else, hijinks. Though now that I'm thinking about it, sat here recording, the premise of that show does sound like quite an interesting idea if it was done like a proper modern-day Netflix serial, rather than, say, the limitations of mid-1970s British television. Like I-, I couldn't imagine the revenge on the Gestapo members being particularly gruesome or violent or any of the plots being particularly harrowing or having high stakes or anything. But a remake could be interesting. Maybe, maybe Paul could do the theme again. Right, now I've gotten all that homework out of the way, i better talk about the, the song itself, hadn't I? Um, well, if the lengthy discussion about all things non-musical wasn't a clue, there really isn't much to write home about with this song. And I, I can add it to the long list of Maca tracks that are more interesting to me as trivia pieces in the big puzzle than as individual pieces of music compositionally and in terms of its instrumentation the track does feel very 1974 wings in that regard Uh, you know there's a lot of Moog uh, it's very guitar focused as well I was quite surprised to uh, hear how much of the actual theme was just two guitars Paul and Danny kind of just riffing together but the main standout of course is that wickedly wild wailing Moog that just comes screeching in you know It's all cool, it's all fun, it's a texture and an environment that I do not mind being in, like a lot of McCartney instrumentals, but my gosh, this does feel like McCartney 1, where we're just wasting time and wallowing and not being focused on anything in particular. And that really doesn't help with my feeling of this song being inconsequential and a a complete throwaway. Like, we're going to get a whole load of instrumentals from Wings throughout their run, but for me, in all honesty, it isn't until we get to the final Back to the Egg incarnation of the band, until we get the uh, the stronger instrumental stuff, probably be, be because of the inclusion of Lawrence Juba and Steve Holly. And here with Zoo Gang, as fun as it is, it is just meandering, isn't it? You know, Paul has one idea, he kind of plays it out and stretches it out and gets the blood out of the stone for all of its worth, and then... Bish bash bosh, he's out of the studio, it's done, he's got his theme. It's not a classic, and I don't see many people writing in decrying a lukewarm take on this one. That's not to say the song is totally without charms and without musicality. Of course, it's still Paul, Denny, and the rest of the quote-unquote zoo gang still working on the song. And, you know me, folks, I enjoy a kitsch, corny, dorky Paul McCartney song as much as the next guy... And I would be lying if I said that I hadn't added this song to my own personal Paul McCartney playlist. But for me, it's definitely more airing towards one of those so-bad-it's-good kind of listens. Junior's Farm! Next up is a song for me that, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you may be expecting me to come down quite hard on and rip to shreds, as it were. But alas, again, as many of you I'm sure are aware of, sometimes all a paul mccartney song needs is a little time for you to finally enjoy it and that song today is junior's farm I don't know what it is specifically, but back in the day, I could not stand this song at all. And for the sake of full transparency, I will admit right now that seeing Paul perform this song live at the O2, well technically what is two years ago now, certainly helped a bunch in my ability to appreciate this song in all of its glory. Here and now though, the more I think about it, the more I struggle to understand what there wasn't to like about this very palatable radio-friendly Wings rocker. The resentment actually goes, oddly, rather far back. I remember not really enjoying this song when I first heard it on my dad's vinyl copy of Wings Greatest. I remember not being a fan of this track when I used to go through my dad's first generation iPod in my younger teen years. And having come to know Wings as well as I do now, my frame of reference is much more refined and I can now thoroughly enjoy it on every level. Not only as one of Jimmy McCulloch's obvious highlights, but one of the band's best singles in general. This song went to number 3 in the US and number 16 here in the UK. Juniors Farm was actually the last thing Paul would release under the Apple label after the dissolution of the final Beatles contracts later that year. Personally, I like to think that it's rather fitting that the song being released at the time of beatle stress once again calls for Paul to be taken to the country, to be taken away from society, very much in the manner that he did in the actual Beatles breakup with his tactical retreat to Scotland. But I digress. The song was recorded as part of the Nashville Sessions Therefore, since these sessions took place during Wings' extended American holiday, a.k.a. just a little bit before Venus and Mars, uh, that means this song was likely the first thing that Jimmy ever recorded with Wings. And yet, despite this newness, Paul, perhaps in a bid to give this whole being-in-a-band thing a proper go, that the second time around actually gives Jimmy a name drop. Take Me Jimmy, which is an introduction that is on the nose, as it is phenomenally cool, and this is right before Jimmy leaps into a wild, memorable and very Unwings-esque solo. It's a fantastic moment in the band's history, and all I can say is that it's a good thing he didn't do the same with the drummer, as drummer Jeff Britton on this track would be out of the band before the Venus and Mars sessions would even officially begin. The tone of the song, as in the literal tuning of the instruments, I mean, really makes it stand out uh, amongst everything else that Wings was doing at this time and in the whole canon, really. And it highlights just how casual and experimental the Nashville sessions were. It's not a proper album session at Abbey Road, so fuck it. Let's do Wings' heaviest guitar number to date. You know, having been working with these crisp, overproduced, McCartney guitar licks on Band on the Run. We are now almost returning to that messy, grungy sound of the Wings Over Europe tour. This song's quote unquote heaviness, you know, in context of wings, probably came out from the fact that this was just a single session, with a unique recording setup, without their usual instruments. And I couldn't imagine Paul steering the band with this kind of direction for a whole album But it's another interesting snippet in the what-if Wings were more of a rock-oriented, alternative timeline dimension. What does attract me about this song, though, is that it highlights both Wings' ability to pick up and play pretty much anywhere, but also that the band are just so creative and they're able to keep up with McCartney's true breadth of genre. But yeah, this is Jimmy's song, isn't it? Even though he never wrote it, I can see more Wings fans recalling this one a lot quicker than his actual track, Medicine Jar, though. But if I'm wrong, please let me know on our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Of course, being a Jimmy song, this song is going to be a rocker. Arguably the hardest and features the heaviest drone in all of the Wings discography. And it's a wonderful rejuvenation moment for the band... You know, we've got newer, younger, cooler members we are coming out post-polished band on the run with this thudding bass and an arrangement that is fundamentally guitar-focused that lavishly culminates in this, this swampy-ass dirty rocker. I don't think anyone saw it coming. And for once, I both love the whole concept and execution of the track together. It stuck excellently. Like I'm not saying it should totally have gone to number one or anything. But in terms of doing something new and different, this is Wings doing it right. At the end of the last year, I was speaking with Ken Michaels about McCartney's use of nonsense language in his lyricism, and when it works and when it doesn't. And here, we run into the same issue. And I'll say now what I said then. You know, with Paul, he can do nonsense as long as the song backing it up is good, and here... The tune, the vocal melody, the guitar sound, the hard rock element of it all together is just so well done. And the beat is so genuinely, enticingly head-bashy and thrashy and jumpy aroundy, especially for a band like Wings, that you really don't mind that he's singing essentially about nothing. You know, you really can bring any sort of meaning and interpretation to these lyrics, if you particularly want to. You know, what is Junior's Farm? What does Junior's Farm mean to you? Is this a song about escape? Or is this a song about the holiday spirit? You know, getting away from everything like the band were doing at the time. Or you can just see it as Monkberry Moon Delight as done by the Jimmy McCulloch era Wings. All in all, not one of the most complicated of rock and rollers. But in terms of diversifying the greatest hits of Wings, this is a worthwhile addition to the canon and I'm... So glad that I have gotten over my silly little unknown issues with this track. I'll look forward to it any time I pop on Wings Greatest now, and of course, any time. And I especially look forward to hearing it any time I go back and revisit that London gig where I saw McCartney. Take me, Jimmy! Sally G! Flipping the disc over now, very literally, for the next song on our list. And we have the B-side to Junior's Farm. This B-side is the epitome of one of my biggest Paul McCartney pet peeves. And that is Paul writing songs oh so specifically and obviously for the American market. This is Sally G. Why do you want to do the things you do to me? You're my side. Sally G Took the part that was the heart of me Sally G The nightlife took me down to Prince's Alley Where Sally sang a song behind the bar No prizes for guessing this one, but Sally G was also recorded during the Nashville sessions in 1974, and never has Paul sounded so darn Nashville in his whole darn life. Like, we know Paul McCartney loves country music, the Beatles loved country music, especially Ringo, uh, on the records, so naturally Wings are going to do something similar at some point. And yeah, I do get that Paul isn't writing a song to pander to American audiences, obviously, you know aka the majority of my audience listening right now and that he was more than likely as he always does just being inspired by his surroundings and this time it's in america and he's digesting and regurgitating the americana around him and he's writing a suitable number to commemorate such an occasion pastiche is something that we run into an awful lot with Paul's songwriting here on this show, and just like everything else Wings did, they tend to be a little hit and miss. Here, I can honestly say that it's a miss. But only because of my own feelings towards this particular genre of music. It's going to be a very subjective one here, everyone. You know, I didn't grow up with it, so it holds no charm or nostalgia for me particularly. And fundamentally, the problem with this song is that it, it sounds like Paul and the gang trying to really be someone else that they're not, rather than him putting his own spin on a classic formula that we are going to see later on in this episode. Rather annoyingly, this was the only other song from this session that really saw any light of day, and the release of Junior's Farm, Sally G, stands out as a very unique Wings release that showcases the band's ability to spontaneously come up with the goods when the occasion calls for it. However, these two songs were not the only ones the band experimented with in Tennessee. Send Me The Heart On to our next song, and what could be worse for me than a Cod Country song performed by Wings and written by Paul McCartney? Well, it can only be a Cod Country song performed by Wings and written by Denny Elaine. This is Send Me The Heart. And as I read your I can see it all went wrong. It's not my place to sit. Don't worry, folks, the title of this song is not alluding to any gory happenings or any David Fincher esque instructions. No. This Nashville-infused number is singing about the regular old hearts that everyone in songwriting sings about and how the lonely heart should be sent to him. Yeah, this is going to be another one of those Denny Lane songs where you can smell the Paul McCartney influence all over it. Like, I can picture in my head, at least, Denny going for more of a faithful country song in the way that he might go for a more faithful blues song. And then the silly love song... Stuff just gets piled on top of it and it doesn't feel like him. Which gives it very little life and you can understand why it wasn't used in any way, shape or form. I mean, it's painfully unmemorable. Even having just listened to it now before recording this, I can barely recall it. Like, even if I wasn't comparing it to something equally banal, like Sally G, I'd be still more than comfortable pointing this one out as a turd. Obviously, Sally G was the song that was chosen to be the B-side. Obviously, there was going to be a choice between this one and that one. Even if Sally G didn't exist, I wouldn't be surprised if this number just wouldn't have stayed shelved regardless. That being said, if there ever was a time that the band were choosing between two American country songs, you know Denny Lane was just never going to stand a chance. Uh, which is a shame, really, because when we compare this to his cold cuts from the Red Row Speedway era... This song does, in some way, show notable improvement. Um, I find it hard to describe this kind of music genuinely, because it, it all sounds so goddamn samey to me. Or at least this particular style of country music. I know this, this isn't the Sam Bash's Country Music podcast, but my God, does this song ever just encapsulate every single stereotypical quirk that forever irks me about this Nashville sound. Though, the slide guitar in this song did give me a slight George Harrison vibe, which which is always a nice little addition. Overall, this is just going to be one of those songs whereby you, the people out there, are only ever going to need to hear the 30-second-ish clip that you just heard earlier. Remarkably unremarkable. But, then again, I absolutely do not enjoy country music, so I'm probably not even qualified to hate this. But, oh well, I'll give it a shot. Wide Prairie Moving swiftly on, and we have a song written by none other than Wings' resident keyboard player AKA The Other McCartney AKA Linda Veggie Sausage McCartney And for those of you who heard our Bruce McMouse episode or any of our Red Rose Speedway content You will know that I am a huge Seaside Woman fan So I was genuinely coming into this one with high hopes This is Wide Prairie was born Not content with Paul and Denny penning their own respective Nashville tunes, Linda too would be contributing to these sessions. And just like Denny, it would also be many, 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 many years until the release of this track. It also came out as the title track for Linda's promostuous album, which oddly enough just actually had a remastering in the vein of the McCartney Archive Collections which is just mental when you think about it, but if you're a little bit strange and you're a Linda McCartney fan just like me, it's actually quite a tidy little release, and I will gladly get to it one day on this show. The history of Linda McCartney's songwriting is a scattershot and underreported aspect to the overall Wings narrative, and with Wide Prairie, it's clear to me that Linda too was more than capable of the Wings songwriting method of being inspired by a brand new locale and putting pen to paper pretty much then and there. Now, I'm not saying that this song is as good as Picasso's last words drink to me. Of course not. I'm just saying that we need to more closely look at Linda's efforts within the band's dynamic and not just write off everything she did as immediately awful. In a move that I simply did not expect, the song begins with an almost spoken word style element where where Linda says the following... I was in Paris waiting for a flight when this guy came up to me and said you got life and you know what happened This little deviation from the rest of the song, which is a fairly standard affair, really holds my attention the most and reminds me somewhat of Paul's experimental wizardry on tracks from Press to Play, like Talk More Talk, in a way that I wish the song had really spent much more time on this oddball use of spoken word elements. But for all the simplicities of the Linda McCartney songbook, you can't say that she didn't at least try and do some pretty strange things here and there. Rather like Seaside Woman, the song is about a particular person in a particular environment that Linda herself has a particular affinity for. In her songs, there is you, you know usually a place, a weather, a feeling. It's all rather rudimentary, but she does at least to attempt to stir the senses, to make a connection and to be about something quote-unquote and i always appreciate the attempt whether she succeeds or not whilst i feel linda does try to write songs her husband wouldn't she is still inundated with the fact that her main musical guide muse and teacher is paul mccartney so you can spot the moments where maybe he has either lent a helping hand or had a direct influence but that's part of the charm and it's almost to be expected by this point now there's no way around it Though, I think the key difference here is that Seaside Woman is an interesting sound, whereas this, unfortunately, is just awkwardly middle of the road. Again, no points for guessing why Paula and the Gang didn't rush this one out as the B-side to Junior's Farm or anything. The song is what it is, and for all of its charms and quirks, it is still pretty uninteresting, even within the Linda McCartney canon. And just like the last track, it ultimately fails to do anything memorable at all past the spoken word stuff like you know me as contrarian as i am i'd love to say that this is an an amazing song but i just can't it's a little bit rubbish of course elephant in the room yeah her voice is still her voice and no matter how clever mad professor mccartney is there's just no way for production mastery to cover up her (laughs) awful singing the thing is folks and i hate to have to say this the only way by which Linda McCartney's voice is palatable is either when it's had some sort of manipulation or it's part of a very strong vocal harmony or she's singing a song that's really, really suited for her vocal limitations. And whilst this song is quite simple, you know, even speaking as a guy who is completely tone deaf in his singing, she just doesn't pull it off, unfortunately. You know, like with Seaside Woman, you had those double-tracked, highly warbled, warped vocals that are clearly the results of many, many takes. And, and Wide Prairie, with its much simpler, stripped-back production, has no way to hide anything. And it, 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 it just cannot boast any intricacies that might fill in any cracks. It's just you and Linda, for better or worse. A lot of this is obviously going to be down to the fact that the Nashville sessions just weren't long enough or conducted in a familiar enough place to allow for a more sophisticated sound to be applied to this song. Though it is strange that when they went back to this track that they didn't give it a little more zhuzh and pizzazz, maybe. You know me. I want to rep Linda as much as possible. We've done a whole episode on this show where we champion Linda. You know, go back and check that out. The top reasons why Linda McCartney doesn't suck. I want to give this song a good shout-out, but I'm not going to. I'm just not. Also, one last thing about this song. I can't be the only person that's been calling it Wild Prairie for the longest of time. I really can't, right? Let's love... Our next song, clearly recorded in in Macca's living room, has such an obviously obvious Paul McCartney sound to it that had I no previous context, I would honestly struggle to place it where in his career it exactly came from at all. This is Let's Love. how commonly McCartney gives us multi-part songs and medleys, it's actually pretty rare on this show to come across a song that actually feels like it's a part of something else and isn't its own thing. But no, this is an official listing on the Venus and Mars Archive Collection Bonus Disc, and therefore it does warrant its own entry on this episode, but barely, because there is nothing here for me. And I know we mentioned how songs like Teddy Boy feel unfinished, but Let's Love is the definition of an unfinished tune. Like, it, it's actually kind of hard to review, because I'm not sure if this home recording is a snippet of an idea that was going to be expanded, uh, would some things have come back in a refrain, uh, would a new chorus be added, I don't know. And since it's only like two minutes long, it, it teases you with thinking it has more to offer, but then it it just kind of cuts out, and you're like, oh, okay, I I guess it's over. Which... Leads to a very unsatisfying experience indeed, so it has to be unfinished. You can totally picture Macca twiddling away on this one in the studio between takes in his tireless way. But, like so many of those ditties, there clearly wasn't anything worth building upon. And, again, you can, you can understand why this wasn't picked up for any sort of proper recording. Maybe Kanye West will do something with it in a little song fragment three years from now. Who knows? Oh no, Sam, but maybe this song might offer some new insight into McCartney's songwriting. No, no, it's not. You have to look somewhere else, because this track just meanders through incredibly familiar McCartney piano themes and movements. Like me, you may never have heard this particular track before, but you've certainly heard McCartney bash the keys in a similar way and waffle on about love previously and better before. It all feels like incidental McCartney elevator music with lyrics. Like, if you took one of McCartney's stream of consciousness type tracks and a silly love song and smushed them together, which conceptually does sound quite interesting, you get this. But as you probably guessed by the clip and the tone of this review, sadly, it really isn't. Let's love, let's not. My carnival! Now, if you thought the last song was an obvious allusion to what Wings were experiencing during their time in the States, you haven't seen anything yet now as we come on to My Carnival. This is yet another song that is proving that my in-depth knowledge of the Venus and Mars period really might not have been as in-depth as I thought and might need a tune-up because, again, I was pretty unfamiliar with this song. Though, I must admit, the moment that I first played this tune, I was overjoyed with how silly and slightly naff the whole thing was. Again, a lot of you surely know I'm rather partial to a little bit of Dorky McCartney and My Carnival is just that. It's just so unabashedly full of joy and whimsy it has some great pronunciation of the word carnival from paul which is just wonderful to hear the instrumentation while simple is thoroughly effective for generating that joyful atmosphere and the idea that this faux wings new orleans track features the lyrics it's a lovely day is as funny to me as it is enjoyable Even if I wanted to be mean in this situation, there are cases like this where I I wonder how hard I can really be on a track that Paul willingly shelved like this for 10 years. As the story goes, McCartney recorded this track in the States, not part of Wings' group holiday. We are now moving on to the official Venus and Mars sessions, and whilst I have warmed to... Treat her gently, lonely old people. Of late, I would gladly have had this song at the end of Venus and Mars instead of the useless crossroads theme. What a waste of disk space! What a waste of disk space that was. So then, after ten years of no inclusion on any release, McCartney slaps My Carnival on the B side to his latest movie tie-in single, "Spies Like Us," for the 1985 Chevy Chase. Dan Aykroyd film of the same name. Now as it turns out I've recently just bought a 12 inch disc of Spies Like Us slash My Carnival and until now I had no cause to play it. And whilst it's safe for you listeners out there to rightfully assume that the three versions of Spies Like Us on that 12 inch do indeed remain unplayed, I have actually given My Carnival a spin on my record player and what I discovered is not only do I still enjoy that track, but you actually get, with that 12-inch, you actually get a a version of the track that is called The Party Mix, and it's a good two minutes longer than the four-minute single release. Now, it would be fun to assume that maybe the chaos simply gets madder for two minutes and builds to an even bigger crescendo, but instead what happens to my ear is nothing more than the addition of some silly 80s sound effects and production tricks, And it simply repeats a couple of verses here and there. Like, it's fun to have, but the bonus bits are just intrusively annoying. And I'm not going to play them. Because I simply want to keep this review largely positive. Though that isn't the only alternative cut of this cold cut track. No. Supposedly, we have a demo cut for My Carnival... And if you listen to the Wings, Venus and Mars archive edition, you will hear a track titled Take Me Down to New Orleans, and then in brackets, My Carnival. Now, I thought I was going to have to do a whole extra segment based on this song. I was like, oh, God, I've got to write a whole nother blooming review. But once you hear the basic 12-bar beat that McCartney and the band were playing in a moment, you will clearly be able to hear the bones of My Carnival taking shape, and you'll be able to almost hear the evolution of the songwriting process happen let's just hear a clip of take me down to new orleans brackets my carnival when i get to new orleans gonna do my thing if yes, i get to new orleans gonna do- Yeah, you can definitely hear the through-line through those two songs. And it's another wonderful little snippet, peek glance into the Wings recording process. In conclusion, it's hard not to draw parallels between this song and songs like "Mama's Little Girl, and even another track that we're going to get onto later in this episode, where McCartney takes a track that isn't actually all that bad. Maybe it just doesn't quite fit onto an album, and then he just unceremoniously slaps it onto a product years later without a buy or leave. And whilst I'm aware that these aren't exactly hits, I think they deserve a more ceremonious and dignified release than that. I didn't think I would, and I don't think I'm going to be invited into the halls of most serious music critics ever, but I really enjoy my carnival. It's a really fun Paul McCartney song. New Orleans! I should be starting this intro with something about how we have another song title based on the most populated city in Louisiana, but oh my fucking god, we've gone and got ourselves another Linda Bloody McCartney song to cover. Once again, Linda is drawing upon the fact that she is recording her current album in the very city of this song's namesake. Of course, this is Linda's own New Orleans. After the first run through of this song I was panicking that I was going to end up invalidating all of my attempts to say nice things about Wide Prairie but it didn't take me long before my love of all things lame Wings ala Cook of the House started to kick in and in all seriousness folks I can truthfully declare that I rather like New Orleans. As with most of today's selections it's not going to rewrite the Wings songbook or anything but. In terms of a Linda McCartney cold cut, it could have been worse. It could have been much worse, people. Perhaps my standards for a good Linda McCartney song are unfairly low when contrasted to the rest of the band. But come on, this is a kooky, quirky little number. You know you like this one. You know you do. And if you don't, I don't know, that's why it's a cold cut. Don't worry about it. Going back to Cook of the House, this track to me feels like a mixture of that song along with the one we just heard, My Carnival. Like we we have that same party atmosphere going and the song is in your face about New Orleans. But instead of focusing on the music, in typical Linda fashion, she focuses on the food with descriptions of gumbo, creole, crayfish, oysters on a half shell and pralines. this is not the only comparison to Cook of the House as this song's success also comes from keeping it simple. You know, just keeping it stripped back to a basic rock and roll tempo and just letting the better musicians have some surface level fun on top of that. The whole thing has a constantly enjoyable repetition that is reminiscent of early like 1972 Wings that drives home that catchy tune and You know, before you know it, you are actually getting quite hooked into one of the corniest rhythms ever. I know I've been very apologetic this episode, but I do have a soft spot for Linda's Wings-era vocals. But compared to Wide Prairie, this, to me, does hit the soft spot of what makes Linda's vocal contributions to Wings just so special in the first place. Like, of course, Paul and the band back her up marvellously here as they always do. But here, her atonal charm, her monotone cuteness, her brilliant badness is in full effect here, and I'm utterly smitten. I'm totally charmed by this. And I know it sounds awfully pandering and like a backhanded comment, but it's not that. I do genuinely enjoy her vocals, but it's certainly not for the reasons I enjoy other vocalists, is it? I'm also aware that this episode may... Seemingly go down as a little addendum to that previous top 11, I think it was, uh, reasons why Linda McCartney didn't suck blog posts slash episode I did. But folks, I, I honestly can't resist this kind of kitsch music. It might be a little bit basic in its overall results, but its efforts, heart and intentions are all in the right place. And that allows the track for me to transcend into something wholesome and thoroughly enjoyable. Like many other tracks on this episode of this song, I have gladly added to my ever-growing personal McCartney playlist, and by golly gee do I ever enjoy singing along to it, because hey folks, I'm a terrible singer too and I can sound good singing this track. Babyface! Moving right on, and we have another obscure song whose title rather aptly describes McCartney's appearance in the 1960s. This is Babyface. We'll get the chords right this time. <laughs> oh, baby face. You've got the cutest little baby face. There's not another who can take your place. Oh, baby face. My poor heart is jumping. You sure have started something, baby face. I'm up in heaven when I'm in your firm embrace I didn't need a shove I just went and fell in love rich pretty little baby talk about a little baby pretty pretty little baby face Babyface you just don't know know how I I love you so so yes This was always going to be one of those adorably whimsical little McCartney throwaways that I was always going to enjoy the moment I heard it. Make no mistake here, folks. Like oh so many cold cuts, do not expect anything earth-shattering in terms of the Paul McCartney songwriting canon. But if you want a bit of pure McCartney, vaudeville showmanship entertainment and that's your thing, then look no further because this is one of those tracks that is just unbearably charming. Like, this song totally sells McCartney as an entertainer. You just instantly know why people enjoy his shtick and why it works. In the very best possible way, this song reminds me of other gooey saccharine tracks like Honey Pie and You Gave Me The Answer. Once again, we have another track that shows McCartney still trying to crack this American New Orleans songwriting formula and... Whilst we wouldn't hear much of this sound directly on Venus and Mars, bar listen to what the man said, it's still interesting to see that McCartney had to put in so much work and genuine effort in order to get the effortless, well-polished sound that that song ultimately sports. Like many of the cold cuts from these sessions, we have the party atmosphere. It's just party, party, party. You know, when wings are in America, there's just confetti falling for days. You know, it was... Around their knees by the time they were finished in the studio, it's all jovial, it's all light-hearted in that classic McCartney way. But with this particular experiment, we have much more of a leaning into the McCartneyisms, and the sound mixes in more of a classical show tune, big band feel. Like Paul McCartney is using the New Orleans band to do this kind of music, and there are certain New Orleans flourishes reminiscent of a lot of the other cold cuts in this episode. But the scales are definitely tipping more towards the McCartney sound here, and the outcome is just as wonderfully, classically corny as you could hope for. For eagle-eyed fans of the Wings documentary One Hand Clapping, which we really should get around to reviewing on this show sometime soon. But yeah, there's a great little clip that you can find on YouTube where Paul is doing this song and he's mugging his face for the camera and he briefly mucks up the chords in the in the cutest little way possible. It's all great footage. And whilst the footage in the documentary is just Paul playing on the piano, you do hear the full backing track that you just heard on that clip there, which isn't anything new for the documentary. One hand clapping, there there is a lot of that. There's quite famously a really good alternate take of 1985, which I'm a massive fan of as well. And like that alternative cut of 1985, this whole song really is a bit of an easter egg in itself because one hand clapping was the only way you could actually hear this track, kind of legally, until the Venus and Mars archive edition in 2014. Unless you're one of those plucky little bootleggers. Again, it's stuff like this. Whilst being rather trivial, it does make me glad that I live in the Spotify age, where I can just listen to Babyface or New Orleans whenever I fucking want to. It's beautiful. I never normally get to say this on this show, but at 1 minutes and 30 seconds, Babyface is woefully short for me. and I m- And I would have much preferred for Paul to have expanded this one, and to be a little bit more indulgent, like the one time Paul... That you aren't indulgent. It's a song that I really quite enjoy. It's exactly my kind of bonus track. Slash outtake. Slash cold cut. Slash hot hit. In the the sense that I love it. But I totally get why he never saw the light of day. Again. You gave me the answer. Was the pinnacle. The zenith. The apotheosis of his granny writing at that time. Of course that's the one that was going to make it onto the album. But hey, if there was an alternative universe where an extended version of Babyface ended up as the B-side to Junior's Farm, then I really wouldn't see that as a bad thing at all. Yep, I'm not going to call this one a guilty pleasure, folks. There are no guilty pleasures on this show. <laughs> I just really like this kind of Bob. Again, as I've said multiple times before, this is just one of those many, many, many varied aspects of Paul's songwriting palette. That I just have, that just does something for me, you know, it it fills a particular groove for me. I love this kind of stuff. Yeah, babyface. There's only 90 seconds of it, but I love every single one of them. Proud Mum, slash, Proud Mum, reprise. And we come on to our next track, slash, tracks now. And these are, well, I think my first on this podcast, whereby, apparently, we have a song that was commissioned for a television advertisement slash commercial for a popular UK bread company? Yeah, okay. This is Proud Mum, as well as the Proud Mum Reprise. Yeah, I know that there was only one clip there, but the Proud Mum reprise is literally just a repetition of some of the music that you will hear in Mother's Pride. I'm not even sure how it's a reprise, really. I'm not sure in what way there was going to be some sort of concept album about Mother's Pride bread, perhaps. But the original Hot Hits and Cold Cuts album did feature both Proud Mum and Proud Mum reprise as two separate songs, but we're not, we're not going to do that here. What I do want to talk about, though... Is Mother's Pride as a brand name? Because contrary to what most of my American listeners will probably presume, Mother's Pride bread is not a name that I, as a later 20-something here in the UK, am remotely familiar with at all. Like, I love me some Hovis, some Warburton's, and of course I know me some Kingsmill. But apparently Mother's Pride is indeed a brand that is still going to this day, as a quick Google search showed me. Though, from what I can gather, it seems that it was much more of a staple brand back in the day. There was even a television advert for Mother's Pride... And I'm guessing it it featured a much greater market share, because there was even a television advert for Mother's Pride Bread in the 60s that featured singer Dusty fucking Springfield. So yeah, they were probably quite the big deal back in the day. And writing a song for such an established brand could seem like quite the legit gig for Wings, right? They're doing TV themes, so why not a TV advert? Well, it's clear that Paul had all sorts of ideas about how the band could branch out in new ways, and we are seeing that time and time again in this episode. So, going back to that clip you just heard there, I think it's quite clear for most of you that this is more than just a a mere little jingle to be rung as a stinger at the end of a quick commercial. No, quite clearly, this is a full and proper composition that Paul had churned out for the bread people. Like, for me as the layman, thinking of writing a jingle or something that's going to be used in an advert, I think of something that is around the 30-second mark. And whilst Paul potentially could have written a piece from which... The Mother's Pride people could have called their own select 30 second clip. The fact that this song was recorded during the Venus and Mars sessions leads me to believe that this was again simply an off-cut or jam session that was put to tape and Paul either heard about this Mother's Pride gig or they came to him and he just gave them a track that he had lying around that he knew wasn't going to go on the final album. Again as I've mentioned before McCartney's instrumentals either grab me or they just don't and with this one. There is straight up one part that I do like and one part that I don't, leaving me feeling muggy about it overall. Whilst the triumphant melody during the orchestral, brassy, thrumpy pumpy segments do have their frog song, chorus esque charms, where it's just got that great McCartney innocence to it, it all just keeps getting interrupted by this overly whiny and intrusive synthy, moog keyboard sounds that just don't fit the tone at all for me, and only serve to spoil what could have just been quite a simple McCartney composition. You know, something that could have been an off-cut from the Popes of Peace sessions, perhaps. Yeah, it's an interesting little nugget, this one. You know, it's Paul trying to do something different and new with his band, but just just the idea of a rock and roll band with Paul McCartney resorting to Advertising Sliced Bread is one of the least cool, least hip, least down with the kids rock and roll concepts ever. So this song was just never going to sit right with me. It's a naff song for a naff project. And I'm now even starting to wonder if ATV and Mother's Pride were owned by the same conglomerate or something. You know, Is this just another forced business move on McCartney's part? Maybe even he didn't want to do it. But yeah, who knows? This song may be Mother's Pride It certainly isn't McCartney's Because I'd never even heard of this one Until I was well and truly deep into this podcast Fourth of July Next up on this list We have a song that once again proves that Much of the magic of a Paul McCartney composition Comes from the fact that it is indeed Paul himself singing it This is Fourth of July Sunset's up the sky there's some This is another song that I really hadn't heard all that much about prior to this episode. It was just one of those many titles that you see on that list of unreleased McCartney material. It was recorded for the Venus and Mars sessions. It appears on all of the remastered and archived releases for that album that pop up from time to time. Again, it was probably inspired by Paul's trip to America of that year. And for those of you who do not hail from the States, well... The 4th of July is America's Independence Day, a holiday which celebrates the Yanks breaking away from the glory of the British Empire and establishing themselves as an independent nation that we know and mostly love today. Another of my favourite of McCartney cold cuts is the home demo, and this time it's of the acoustic guitar variety, and what we get is a very tender little number. It sounds cliche, but you genuinely get something a little more pure McCartney with these home recordings, because it's him before he's able to overindulge in the post-production, and you get to see the raw song for what it is. In terms of this episode, 4th of July is a well deserved change of pace from country tunes so maybe I'm a little more lenient here but again this is another song that I genuinely could have seen going on to Venus and Mars or maybe even Wings at the Speed of Sound. Gosh this episode really is churning out a lot of songs that are of better quality than a lot of the album tracks that are going to be on subsequent albums so this is very strange folks. I wouldn't exactly put this song at the end of the album but again Totally beats out Crossroads theme, though since Paul absolutely smashed it with Love In Song, which may still be low-key my favourite song from that album, uh, and and since it is such a well-realised acoustic track, he was never going to include this number on the final album. He, He rarely ever doubles up like that unless it is a double album. I guess the reason that I can truly see this song being included as a full composition on a Wings or Paul McCartney project is that it actually did go on to become a fully realised project, but not with Paul at the helm. Now, the last time I did a big Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode, rather idiotically, I neglected to research the fact that Paul's song Goodbye was actually a song that he went on to give to his own protégé, Mary Hopkin, and she had major success with it. And I do not want to make the same mistake again, especially since Goodbye has now been released on the Abbey Road Deluxe Remastered Edition that came out in 2019. And instead, I want to highlight the cover version of 4th of July that was released by singer John Christie in 1974, so the same year. Let's hear a quick clip of that. Sunset's painting up the sky. There's something in my eye Why am I crying? It's the 4th of July Friends come up to me and say It's gonna be your day Before you say anything, no, I do not mean to say that that was John Christie, the acid bath murderer of London, for any of you true crime fans. It's just an unfortunate coincidence that the singer shared his name with a monster. In fact, I can find so little on John Christie, the musician-singer online, that they may very well be the same person. Right, what do we know about the cover version? Well, it was produced by Dave Clark of Dave Clark 5 fame, aka the second band in the British pop invasion of America. And from what I've garnered from both Clark and Christie's respective discographies, it seems that Clark was taking the young singer under his wing, very much in the same way that McCartney had been nurturing Hopkins. And, just like McCartney, Clark wanted a song written by Paul McCartney. And since he isn't Paul McCartney, he instead had to go to Paul McCartney. Again, this is going to be one of those mysteries in this episode of, you know, did Paul already have this song in the bag? And he simply recorded it in the studio with the gang? Or did he write it on commission? You know, what was the demo that Clark received? Well, according to the Bootleg Macca album titled Mo Mac's Hidden Tracks Volume 4, there is apparently a 20-second snippet of this track that was originally part of the James Paul McCartney TV special, which was in mid-1973. Now, I quickly skimmed the James Paul McCartney TV special and couldn't find anything. So I guess we're going to have to file this one away under the maybe pile. Um, If any of you have any information on when this song was originally written, or if it is a part of the James Paul McCartney TV special or a bootleg, drop us an email at paulmccartneypile at gmail.com. I guess I'm waffling on about the unimportant mystery that is this cover, because I really didn't connect at all with Christie's own interpretation of McCartney's work. Of course he too is a very strong singer and I could understand why people would have an attachment to this song safe if they'd heard it back in 1974 but the limp attempts at Beatle slash Simon and Garfunkel esque sounds and movements came across as totally derivative like they really just didn't do anything unique enough to distance it far enough from an obviously Macca-esque sound The Paul McCartney version of 4th of July, however, is an incredibly warm and delicate little home recording that really did show the potential that this song could have actually been something at least by Paul McCartney, maybe even not by Wings, but Paul definitely could have slapped this on a B-side in 17 years or something. And even if the song really isn't quite your thing, you cannot deny the chorus to this one. It is a classic that just sucks you in, and you can't forget it the moment you've heard it. Now, of course, I am naturally inclined to end this review with, well, you know, I, I do something along the lines of, oh, Independence Day, 4th of July, I'm glad that I'm no longer independent of this song, but unfortunately for you, I'm not going to do that. It's a terrible joke. Everyone, go check out 4th of July. It's an incredibly unique Paul McCartney demo where you you just get to see a side of him that he really wasn't exploring all that much during this period, and... It's always nice to know that Paul is still Paul. Lunchbox Odd Socks. Next up, and we're going to have ourselves another classic Paul McCartney two-parter song, and not just any two-parter, but a two-parter song title with a dash through it. Though, I'm not sure if he's ever tried to make the two songs in a title rhyme before till now, with Lunchbox Odd Socks. What you just heard there were two snippets, the first being the upbeat and jazzy section for Lunchbox and the slower, more dramatic segment being the Odd Socks. Right from the get-go, I'm going to say that I am more of a Lunchbox kind of guy than an Odd Socks one. The opening piano movements and the general kooky maca at the keys feel that this song has, to me, evoked some of his most iconic piano playing, a la 1985. Uh, Morse Moose and the Grey Goose or Monkberry Moon Delight because by God is that opening piano riff, that lick, just so catchy. It really is killer. Paul just manages to worm his way into your ear instantaneously with that one. Like, you can tell that Paulie's just really having some fun with this one. I have no idea why there are so many instrumentals on today's episode, though, and why there were so many instrumentals during this period, because, unfortunately, the only instrumental that does appear on Venus and Mars, as you can probably tell by my rants about it on this episode, is a very, very bad one indeed. Though, yet again, we have another very solid instrumental here. Paul adds a lot of fancy flourish to this track. It's very emotive, very melodramatic, and it has this element that, A couple of Paul McCartney instrumentals have that I've noticed that is very quite interesting whereby the melody of the instrumental is so strong that you can almost imagine it being a vocal melody in itself and Paul adding a vocal to this one. You know how like, UU was originally an instrumental and then Paul just added a little vocal on the top? Maybe there could have been something added here just to push it over the edge. Though, when I do talk about all these positives, I am 98% talking about the lunchbox stuff because rather like, Cage We bottle out of a patently more cheerful and upbeat opening segment before going into what boils down to a song that is not as good. I've probably bored you to death with mentioning this on this episode, but this is another song that's been added to my McCartney playlist. But do not think I do not skip to the next song after 1 minutes and 20 seconds into this track every damn time. And that's not to say the odd sock stuff is bad. It's just there's no meat to it. It just feels very, very meek indeed. And I do feel bad harping on about it. As always, it's a B-side, so you don't want to go t- in too heavy. But even its title admits to you that this is a thing mismatched with another thing. It's the odd sock. It's a you know, it's a thing that doesn't go with another thing, which could be quite fun. Uh, and creative conceptually especially with the way that McCartney in the past has been able to stitch together rather disparate songs but it just doesn't work out here. There's also a bit of guilt I have attached to bashing the sessions a lot in this episode because I think we've seen across a lot of these cold cuts a clear progression towards Linda having a more expanded role within the band like there's just lots of moog and a lot of keyboards and it seems like it's Linda playing it because it's clearly not Paul playing it but at the risk of Simply asking the keyboard to sit this one out and wait their turn. If the song doesn't need keyboards, then don't use them. And maybe the Odd sock stuff needs it more than the Lunchbox segment. But when you finally compare the amount of synthy stuff that's on the final Venus and Mars and how much has been on today's episode, you can kind of see who's being cold. Clearly there was some sort of sound or effect or even like a medley that the the band were working towards for this album like the evidence is here in the cold cuts and whilst i can't even tell if they achieved it the strength of venus and mars speaks for itself and something had to have worked for it to have stuck the landing the way it did as i alluded to earlier this is going to be yet another one of those songs that mccartney ended up recording but ultimately leaving it in his back pocket until such a time of need would arise Though, unlike My Carnival, it would actually be released a little bit quicker, with only a five-year delay before it hit shelves. It eventually became the B-side to Solo McCartney's Coming Up. Well, one of the B-sides. As, strangely enough, Coming Up featured both Coming Up Live in Scotland and Lunchbox Odd Socks as the B-side, or shall I say B-sides, Not sure how it all fits, or if it affects the fidelity of the audio quality or anything like that. But yeah, it is there, and yeah, the more I think about it, the more this song stands out as a track clearly from an earlier era in McCartney's oeuvre. Like, even though it is a bit mad Professor McCartney in spots, it really doesn't sound anything like coming up, and doesn't really fit in the McCartney 2 sessions either. And if it doesn't sound like the A side, and there's already a perfectly good B side, then why is it even on this particular release at all? Don't get me wrong, I'm glad it was released and we got to hear it before an archive release. But did McCartney really feel that now was the the, the prime time for the world to be introduced to Lunchbox Odd Socks? Or maybe even was it a case of poor... Maybe even the record label not wanting to put out what is essentially the same song on both sides of the disc. And Paul grabbed this track from his drawer and away we went. But even if that's the case, then why did they leave Coming Up Live in Scotland on the release? Especially since that was such a massive success in the States. I I don't know. Rather wonderfully, like so many songs on this episode, this is another track that I honestly wouldn't have minded seeing on Venus and Mars. The other selections are probably a little bit stronger. And I know this one's a little bit too long to truly re- replace Crossroads, but then you could just, for my sake, lop off the lesser Odd socks segment, and we have a fun little one-minute McCartney piano lick to close out the album. We've already had one Piano Awesome lick that was only teased at the end of Rock Show at the start of the album. So this would certainly balance things out and help make up for that. So, very much in the vein of Babyface and My Carnival, I've once again been treated to an off-cut Paul McCartney song that is just so sweet and silly and lame and charming and delightful that I have just become immediately smitten with it. I had no chance. This is another one of those cold cuts that I've added to that Everyday McCartney playlist that I mentioned earlier. And I've already cycled to work to the sound of this track more times than I can remember. Even if I did have to slow down slightly to skip past the Odd Socks segment. Walking Through the Park with Eloise. Now, to cap this episode off, we're going to discuss the other single that was garnered from the aforementioned Nashville Sessions and released back in '74 though not under the name or branding that you would first expect. This is Walking Through the Park with Eloise by the Country Hams. released in Great Britain on the 15th of October 74, the track you just heard there was not officially released by the band Wings or even by Paul McCartney for that matter. In a similar situation to Percy Thrillington or Susie and the Red Stripes, Paul has once again bottled out and realized that the music that he's been working on even for a band as tonally flexible as Wings is a bit too far off brand and he has reacted in the same way by creating this alternate act this fake moniker to ensure that the song is released in some form and the title of the band he's gone for is the country hands which is probably alluding to the fact that this song is incredibly hammy or maybe paul's dad liked gammon who knows Like Paul had put the band through some questionable decisions, both musically and in terms of their image over the years. Mary Had a Little Lamb in particular. And it is good to see, I guess, that Paul is now choosing to distance the band from his more niche and self-serving ideals. Speaking of Paul's dad, Jim, as you can quite clearly tell, this song, like Babyface, shows that Paul really was trying to crack the nut that was his granny song formula once again along with this new orleans sound he'd been working with obviously there are other elements that make it a little less vaudeville than you first expect like a a little bit of guitar sound like I, i honestly didn't expect an electric guitar to appear in this one it's um but the most interesting fact about this particular track by paul mccartney is that it wasn't written by paul mccartney It was written by a McCartney, though, as Walking Through the Park with Eloise had been written many, 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 many years prior by Paul's father, Jim McCartney. Of course, Macca's dad was a big brass band type of guy, and I could totally picture him now in some grand Liverpudlian hall, getting all the people's feet to tap in and essentially coming up with this song on the spot, or you know, connecting different rhythms and movements that he'd just been working with in venues for years. And if the, the story is to be believed, this main melody, this tune, is indeed Jim McCartney penned. Whether he physically penned it or or wrote it down is debatable. I'm sure Jim played this on the piano for Paul and the family many, many times. But if it is true. Boy, oh boy, (laughs) is this a case of like father, like son. Because not only can you see where Paul gets his influences, but there seems to be some genetic memory here where you can just instinctively pick up on the fact that, of course, this is where, from whence Paul McCartney came. You know why he can just do this shit at will. Now, when Paul spoke of his father's quote-unquote songwriting skills, he recalled this little interaction. I said to my dad, Do you know you wrote that song? He said... I didn't write it. I made it up. I said, I know what you mean, but we call that writing these days, Dad. Now, I know I've been a little harsh on Paul in the past when I've been questioning his judgment on whether or not to go to his father's funeral, to go and launch the Wings Over America tour, but I would be most certainly wrong to accuse Paul of having anything other than a wonderful relationship with his father And the fact that Macca had already recorded When I'm 64 for his father seven years prior shows that he had an immense affection for him. Paul has written many songs that are shout-outs to his influences over the years, and it only makes sense that his dad be included in that roster. And, as a guy who lost his own father about a year ago, I can only see the warmth and love in such an act. And when you find out that Paul arranged with the BBC that this recording would first be aired on his dad's birthday, then it it just becomes difficult to hold back the tears, really, because that's just magical. That's beautiful. I couldn't find anything on Jim's actual comments on the song and the arrangement and how maybe Paul composed it. But nevertheless, I am sure he loved it. I mean, why wouldn't you? But yeah, okay, conceptually, I am down with this song. We all know that. As sincere and noble as the intentions for this song undoubtedly were, there were other benefits that came with recording this Scouser show tune in Tennessee. Paul's main man, whilst he was in Nashville, Buddy Killen, was able to make the recording of this track a little extra special for Paul by getting two of his idols in for the session. These gentlemen were both founding members of the Nashville Sound, and they went by the names Chet Atkins, a.k.a. Mr Guitar, on, you guessed it, the guitar, and American Hall of Fame pianist Floyd Kramer, you guessed it, on the piano. You can also hear famed session musician Buddy Thompson on banjo and rhythm guitar. The horns and the arrangements were all conducted by a man named Tony Dorsey, through which Buddy Killen had been using for his own R&B sessions. As a result of this recording though, Tony Dorsey would go on to become Paul's arranger for all of the Wings tours. Presumably, working very closely with the likes of Howie Casey. Ever the instrumentalist, Paul, in addition to playing bass, did exactly what I would do if I was going to be working with a kind of country western band, and he plays the old scratchy scratch washboard good stuff. Now, you're probably all wondering where the familiar Wings names fit into this musical arrangement. Well, that's where things do get fucking weird. Neither Jimmy, Denny or Linda participated on this track in any way, but Wings Runt of the Litter barely counts as a member and drummer Jeff Britton does indeed play the drums on Walking Through the Park with Eloise. Yeah, I know, right? This reminds me of Paul using Lawrence Juba for one of Ringo Starr's albums. Oh well, at least there's still another notch in Jeff Britton's bedpost. What are my actual thoughts on this track, though? Do I indeed like this one? Mm, kinda. Usually, reviews like this with me will mention my love of granny songs, and whilst this is definitely in that category, I do struggle to enjoy this one past the concept stage. Like, I don't, I don't go out of my way to listen to this one. And whilst it warms my soul to know that Paul did his dad's song, it doesn't mean his dad's song is anything to write home about, does it? You can imagine this song being smack bang in the middle of any number of black and white montages of New York or London, or as the opening theme to a Gene Kelly picture. And of course, Dirt, that is the point. Paul is trying to recreate a very faithful song from the roaring 20s, 30s and 40s here. But did Paul have to stick so faithfully to the original source material that he had to work with here? Like, there was no attempt to update this song for a modern audience, as it were, this isn't going to be the McCartney 2 version of Walking Through the Park with Eloise. No, this is a throwback, 100%. But if you managed to actually get a recording of Jim McCartney doing this in the back of some pub somewhere back in the 50s and played it against this track now, especially with Paul's ear, I don't doubt that they would be remarkably similar. Though, like I said earlier, I do doubt that there was rhythm guitar in the original composition, Look, is it great that Paul did a tribute to his dad by recording one of his songs? Yes. Is it interesting that there's such a through line between father and son musically? Yes. Does that mean it's a good song and I'm going to go back and listen to it? No. And finally, was Paul right to not release this Under the Wings label? Of course he was. Especially when you see the sleeve of the single. Oh, it's such an eyesore. But yeah, I'm not going to be walking through the park with Eloise anytime soon. Bridge on the River Suite. And for our last song today, folks, we cap things off with the flip side to Walking Through the Park with Eloise by The Country Hams, a.k.a. Wings, a.k.a. Jim McCartney, with a track that exists for no greater reason than all of these amazing artists just happened to be in the same room at the same time, and they all had a few minutes left to jam. This is Bridge on the River Suite. B-sides always get a bad rap, and it's hard not to go into a track like this with the B-side mindset. But I do find the fact that this is a B-side at all a little strange. Like, Paul put all this time and effort into putting together this very authentic, very timely period piece together for his dad, and then on the other side of the disc, it's nothing more than yet another of today's frankly quite mediocre Paul McCartney instrumental tracks. Not only that but this track seems more unsuitable for this single's A-side than Lunchbox Odd Oddsocks was for coming up. Like, we have this classic McCartney show tune straight out of Tin Pan Alley, and then on the other side, as if to drop all pretense that this is some sort of actual group called the Country Hams, rather like in the way that Sergeant Pepper fizzles out after the first couple of songs, Paul just drops the act and adds this contemporary little doodle of a jam session in just to back it up. Artistically, it just doesn't make sense at all. Like, there are so many other granny songs that Makani could have slapped on the back of this. Walking through the park with Eloise, accompanied by something like Babyface, could have been really quite fun for fans of McCartney granny music like me as a collectible. But this just ruins it, really. Bridge on the River Suite, despite having a title that alludes to the fact that it might be something like the A-side, is somewhere between a half-baked Bond song and Stoner Lounge tune. This song doesn't exactly present a strong identity as to what it exactly is or why I'm supposed to remember it. Again, everything comes across as very incidental and without direction. You know, the horn section, whilst having a pop and a cinematic flair, are just window dressing for a real nothing of a song. There is this really chilled out guitar picking that literally sounds like Paul twiddling away on his fretboard as everyone else is packing up to go home. Which could be quite cool on its own, maybe even if it was a bit longer, something along the lines of a a secret friend. But then it's just randomly punctuated by all these dramatic heist brass notes, almost as if they're trying to make you jump in some bad found footage film. And I'm just left confused as to what the idea or point was, really. In my own contrarian way, yeah, I would just prefer this song to be just the mellow jam stuff. Maybe leave the sax and trumpets at home, but, you know, Paul's got all these New Orleans, Nashville guys in there with him. He's going to make use of them. And Paul needed to fill some space on a single, as he is wont to do. We shouldn't even be surprised at this point. So, yeah, as it stands... Oh, sorry, folks, the last review on this episode was a little bit negative there. Bridge on the... But I stand by it as Bridge on the River Suite does the unthinkable in being, for me, a hardcore Wings fan even more forgettable than a walk through the park with Eloise. If Paul was perhaps trying to make his dad's song look better by comparison through adding one of his own rubbisher tunes, then boy oh boy did Paul ever succeed. But as an independent piece of music that you can listen to at your own free will, give it a miss. And there we are, folks. We've done it. That is every song that Wings recorded in this little period that didn't end up on Venus and Mars. We've had a whole load of country tunes, multiple Linda McCartney numbers, lots of granny songs, and enough instrumentals to make McCartney one blush. All of these songs were recorded in the older US of A, and whilst Paul and the gang may not have delved as deep into the culture as we might have hoped, what we did get was a whole fried chicken bucket load of songs that accurately reflect Wings' ever mercurial nature and desire to do something different from album to album. It would be nice to imagine that there was a more Ringo Starr-esque country album in the pipeline for Wings, and perhaps after these sessions, Venus and Mars was fashioned more into a standard rock album. I mean, it'd be a fun idea. Wings are already very folksy and sing about the countryside, so to have them do a country album is probably not as big of a stretch as I first thought. Though, whilst a Yankee Doodle country album would have sold massively in the States, just because it's got Paul's face on it, I reckon Paul's perception of image, uh, especially, you know, since we just talked about walking through the park with Eloise, would have prevented any sort of country album being put out by Wings. Though fans would only have to wait a couple of decades till Run Devil Run. Rather safely, there's been a pretty general 50-50 split on what I liked and didn't like on this episode. Again, that really wasn't planned. I do try to keep the show as objective as possible in my own subjective way. If there was a review that you disagree with or shock horror that you maybe even do agree with and you'd like to chime in and comment yourself, maybe even challenge my own thoughts then please write in an email to paulmccartneypod at gmail.com and I will gladly read out your thoughts here on the show. Also, folks, and this is one of the main points of these Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episodes, if there are indeed any songs that I have missed from this period or even missed from any previous episodes at all, please also drop me an email so I can make sure that each song gets its moment in the spotlight. To keep it up to date in general with the show, check out our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Check out the blog, which is www.paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube, by typing in Paul McCartney Pard or Paul or Nothing. Please leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you are using. And of course, if you want to see the show grow, if you want to help see the show expand and help you keep the lights running, maybe you just want to buy me a cheeky drink, check out our Patreon page down below, help support the show. Thank you very much for listening to Cold Cuts and Hot Hits Part 3, folks. I was looking forward to this episode. It's felt like a long while since I've done one of these. And, my God, am I itching and raring to do one of my music video reviews now as well. Keep your ears to the ground for future Paul or Nothing content. I've had a little bit of a break over the Christmas period and at the start of the new year. But we are back in action now, folks. We're going to probably have, over the next few weeks, a Wildlife Listen with Sam episode. Like I say, we're going to have another videography episode. Press to play is just around the corner. I really want to get my Hey Grand Dude review up and out there as well. And it's also been a while since I've done a film review as well, so maybe it's time I got around to Yellow Submarine. Right, folks, thank you very much for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. I am Sam Wiles, your host. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope you've all had a wonderful holiday period. Happy New Year. Let's all look forward to 2020, the best year for the podcast ever. I'm sure Denny Lane has already been playing us out by now, folks. Peace and love, peace and love. Take me, Denny!